All right. Welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. This is episode seven. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. So today we are going to do a deep dive into the topic of rain gear, and I'm going to do my best to explain how rain gear works and what some different recommendations for different circumstances are, even get into some low budget choices and talk about the different scenarios in hunting where you're going to need rain gear and what type of rain gear to use during those different scenarios. And as always, we're going to dig into a little bit of training and diet and some current events and some other related stuff. So first of all, thanks again to everyone for commenting, liking, and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you choose to enjoy this content on. And I would like to ask you to please continue to provide that support. So hit the like, share, comment, subscribe, whatever button, whatever platform, doesn't matter. Deeply appreciate it. So let's dive right into the training session this week. And I hit a bit of a wall this week and I it was, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to talk about. And then once this kind of hit me yesterday, I was like, oh, this is a good thing. We haven't really touched on this in the podcast yet. So I want to talk about the concept of recovery, more specifically the concept of deloading. So I've been training pretty intensively right now since, when was the last, I guess the last real break I would have had would have been the last week of October when I went hunting with Primitive out in Alberta. Since then, it's been balls to the wall pretty much straight since then. In my experience, depending on how hard I'm training, I tend to hit a wall after about two to three months and uh, the injuries and the strain kind of catches up. And I, and I feel the need to take a little bit more recovery than normal. Let me back up and explain that again, because I'm not sure if, if what I'm trying to express is adequately coming through. Um, I train really hard with really heavy weights. So you are going to have the specific muscular damage that you're doing. Like back day is going to hit your back. Arm day is going to hit your arms. In addition to this, though, you're going to have the overall CNS, central nervous system fatigue, of really taxing physical workouts. And that can come through any kind of workout. It doesn't necessarily have to be lifting. But in my experience, as you repeatedly abuse your CNS, you just start to run out of gas and your body stops repairing overall as quickly as it was previously. And the symptoms that tend to crop up that let me know I'm hitting this, this wall is joint pain, lower back pain, DOMS that for those of you who don't know what that means, it's delayed onset muscle soreness. That's like when your legs hurt for three days after a leg day, that's DOMS. DOMS that don't go away as fast as they should, uh, sluggish in the morning, irritable, you quick to snap at my wife or my daughter. And I'll notice those, all those little symptoms will start to compound. And normally it'll take me a couple days. I'll just think everybody's an idiot or I'm just being lazy. And then it occurs to me, no, fuck man, you're, you're, you're starting to get towards that overtrained, um, area. Now we could have a whole debate on whether or not overtraining is actually a thing or not. Some people would argue you're just underslept or undernourished. I don't think it really matters for the purposes of this conversation. Suffice it to say, when your body has a, a finite set of resources given to it, it is only capable of a finite amount of output. And when you start to ask it to exceed that output, you got to pay the piper somewhere. 
There's no free lunch. So that's when I start to notice, okay, something's off. I'm not feeling as good as I should be. Now I generally feel kind of beat up most days. I train like a fucking savage. Um, I love it. I like to feel a little beat up. It lets me know I'm doing my job. However, there's a line. And when I go across that line, I stop being effective. We talked about that a little bit last week. There's this great book about by Peter Drucker, and it's about the difference between being effective and being efficient. I can't drill home enough how important it is for me to be effective. And so when I, when I cross that threshold and I start to decrease my effectiveness, and if I'm lucky enough to have the self-awareness, I need to stop and give my head a shake and be like, okay, what do you need to do? Now, one option would be to just take a break, take a week off, get lots of sleep, get lots of food, and just totally recover. There's option number one. We could do a deload week. So you still go in and train, but we take the lifts down to let's say 70% of weight and 70% of intensity. Uh, One system I really like is we could do a staggered day off. So I normally train five days a week. For a week, let's just train every other day. Get in there for three days. And don't crush yourself when you're in there. And there's basically three elements that you need to look at or examine or have a strategy for when you're looking at one of these deloading phases, your training, your food, and your sleep. So it's not okay to reduce training if you don't also take into account food and sleep. Like if you're undernourished and underslept, it doesn't matter how much rest you give yourself off of the gym, you're still not going to recuperate appropriately. So what I've decided to do is probably do a staggered day off week. I like training too much to stop doing it for a week, even though that might be the most beneficial thing. I don't really give a shit. And because it's still the holidays and my daughter is still home, this actually works really well. Um, Makes it easier for my wife. I'm only going to the gym every other day and I can just go have fun. So I won't use my logbook on these days. I won't even look at what exercises I'm supposed to do. I'll just go in and do shit that's fun, that I enjoy. I'll do like straight sets with straight rep schemes. So I'll do like four sets at 10 to 12, and I'll just make sure I get a nice pump, break a nice sweat. Maybe I'll even do a little bit more cardio. Like maybe I'll throw in 20 minutes of cardio at the end, not crazy hard, just to get the heart pumping. I think that also facilitates recovery. Some activity seems to facilitate recovery better for me than no activity, which is another reason why I like these staggered days off. So I'll keep an eye on my food. I'll keep an eye on my sleep. I'll make sure that I'm increasing both as as much as appropriate. And then I'll do this every other day staggered thing. So that was just a training tip that I wanted to pass on. If you don't hit some kind of wall like this on a regular basis, I would argue that you're not training at maximum intensity. Sometimes I'll get messages like, is it okay to train every day? And my response typically goes something like this. If you're physically capable of training every single day, you're training like a bitch. I physically am not able to train every single day. Like my body would just shut down. After I do two or three in a row, I'm fucked. Especially if there's a back day or a leg day in there. Like they are just so taxing on my overall system that... I I couldn't train more. Maybe I could push it to three or four, but I would start to train like a bag of shit. So anyways, I'm kind of going off on a side tangent here. 
have the self-awareness to recognize when you need to give yourself some self-care in order to protect the effectiveness of whatever training system you're utilizing. Okay, let's talk diet for a minute. Uh, Really great news this week. I broke a new record for myself. So previously, 256 pounds was my peak back in August, and I hit 261 pounds this week. And I hit it twice. I went up, came back down to around 260, and then back up to 261. So that's a really good sign. It's not like I just ate like an asshole over Christmas and put on a bunch of water weight because of all the sodium and the glycogen. This is legitimate weight. Um, Obviously, there's still some fluff in there, but when things go up slowly and stay there, that's a much better sign to me than when they skyrocket up overnight and then plummet right back down. For my check-ins, I typically average my weight over a week. So I'll record my weight every single morning, divide that by seven, and then that's the weight that I use for check-ins. I'm more interested in trends than I am in discrete numbers. The other thing that came to mind, and I was listening to an interview with Chad Nichols, who's this famous kind of diet coach for bodybuilders. He did Ronnie Coleman, and he just recently um, consulted with Big Rami for his win at the Mr. Olympia last weekend or two weeks ago now. And he had an interesting comment about dirty foods. So I tend to eat like chicken and rice, potatoes and steak, like what bodybuilders would coin clean foods, even though that's kind of a bit of a bullshit term, whatever. When I say it, you know what I mean, so we'll fucking use it. Um, and he said, your body gets so used to the those foods that you will hit a plateau because it becomes so efficient at using them, it's hard to actually push into new territory. And that's why he likes feeding his guys some dirty foods from like burgers and pizzas and pasta. I mean, he goes off. I'm not saying I go that hard, but I did go pretty hard on the dirty food over Christmas and Boxing Day. Like, yeah, I had desserts and I just ate whatever was on the table and I just low stress, just enjoyed myself. And I think it helped. I think that the weight went up and it stuck. And I think incorporating some dirty foods in there um, was definitely part of the reason for that. So I just, that was an interesting thing to note. Another thing that I find very interesting is that like, I feel a little bit fluffier this week than I did last week, but every time I've broken a weight plateau, it's always messy the first time you get there. So this is my third major plateau that I've broken. So I've been, I've been bulking now for two years. So I got from 209 to 245 on kind of my first um, run as I was bulking the first six month period. And then I took a bit of a break, probably lost seven or eight pounds. But when I hit that 245 or 246, again, I felt pretty fluffy and watery and bloated and like not great, like not hard and tight. And, but when I went back down to like, let's say 237 or 238, stayed there for two or three months, then I went on my next bulk and I went back up, I blew through 245, and when I hit 245, I felt great. I felt relatively lean and tight, and everything was great, and I pushed all the way up to 256. Now, when I hit 256, I kind of felt like a fat piece of shit, and then the same thing happened. I came back down for three months, and then I went back up, and this time when I hit 256, I felt great. Now that I'm getting up towards 261, I'm starting to feel a bit fluffy again, but it's nice because I've been here a few times. So I'm not stressed out about it. Like I, I, I am not objectively a fat fuck. I just kind of feel like one because my body's not used to being at this new weight. 
Now, the goal will be, I could have another four weeks left in this bulk. I mean, 265 would be great. I don't really want to push it any further than that. It's starting to get like carrying around this much weight is a bit much and it's only two months until my goat hunt. So I'm trying to like balance these two kind of counterproductive goals, this putting on mass for bodybuilding, but staying lean in order to make hiking better. So if I could push up to 265 and then come back down to 255 for my goat hunt, I think that's what would be ideal for me. But I just wanted to share that in case any of you guys are looking to put on weight, don't stress out if you start feeling a little bit fluffy when you get up to these new numbers for the first time. I think you kind of have to. I think you are asking your body to do something it's never done before. And I think the only way to, to successfully do that is to force it. And to force it, you got to get a bit chubby and you got to force the food and it, it's got to be slightly uncomfortable. So if that's where you're at, just know that's where you're supposed to be at. So it's somewhat interesting that I opened up this week's podcast starting about recovery because the gear update I want to get into this week, I'm wearing on my wrist right now and it's a whoop. So a really good buddy got in touch with me and like pretty forcefully recommended I get this one. And he noticed something about the podcast that I think I knew, but I'd never articulated. And now he, that he pointed it out, it's very important to me, actually, that the podcast does this. And he said, you're doing a really good job of bringing data and analysis to a space where there's not a lot of data and analysis. And he said, you can also bridge the conversation between the nerdy people and the meatheads. And I thought that was a very interesting compliment. And if I am able to successfully do this, I will be very happy. That would be one of my ultimate goals. And he said, given your love of data and analysis, he's like, you have to get a whoop. So it monitors your heart rate 100 times per minute. And with that, it can look at a bunch of other metrics like heart rate variability, quality of sleep, breathing patterns. And it basically has these algorithms to monitor your recovery and it can it can give you a percentage like i'm 57% recovered from the previous day's activities or whatever um i've only had it for a day and a half so i've only slept with it once so i'm still kind of getting used to it what can i say about it so far um it was very easy to set up um came out of the box paired with my phone right away the app interface was very simple and intuitive and easy to use. It's comfortable. It's kind of kind of stylish, I guess. Like it's it's minimalist. I I feel kind of weird because I'm wearing an Apple Watch on one wrist and a Whoop on another and I'm not sure if it's cool or if I look like a fucking douchebag. Um the jury is still out on this one. I will get a verdict though. So yeah, looks kind of cool stylish. You don't, um, it fits nice. I don't really notice that it's on my wrist. Uh, dries really quickly after the shower. Here's the cool thing. The battery lasts for five days and there's actually a battery pack that slips on the top of the, this little clasp here. So you don't ever actually take it off your wrist. You just take the little battery pack and you, you clip it on and you leave it on for an hour and a half and then you, you charge it. Why I'm excited about this for hunting is that I used to have to charge my Apple watch every day. I like being able to keep count of my calories um, and energy expended on my hunts. 
again, just because I'm a data nerd and it's like fun shit to look at. So the nice thing about the Whoop is that I'll be able to take the strap and the battery pack and I'll have a 10-day charge with me. Very rarely do I hunt longer than 10 days. And if I do and I ran out of juice for the last two, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, so I am looking forward to it being slightly more practical than the Apple Watch. I don't even think I'll bring my watch with me now. There's no real need for it now that it's not counting calories and energy expenditure for me. Um I'm also very interested to document the training. I'm going to do a more thorough episode on my pre-goat hunt training regimen once I start really kicking it into high gear for that. And I'm going to start incorporating more of the data output from the Whoop in my conversations about training. And then I'm also very interested to document in a more detailed way kind of the different levels of intensity of the hunt itself. And I'm in a unique position because I'll be filming the hunt and everything has a time code, obviously, and I'll be wearing the whoop. I've thought to myself, I could actually sync those two things up and I could then even maybe incorporate some of the whoop data into the film. I thought that would really be really cool. Like if I was going up a particular face, I could bring like, so the whoop has created this thing called a strain number that goes from, I believe, zero to 21. And it's basically a metric designed to communicate a, a, a figure that will be comparable across individuals that represents the level of strain you're currently enduring. So if I got an 18, I, I'm I'm almost at maximal effort. I'm working at 21 would be as hard as possible. So my 18 should be somewhat similar to your 18. So we can, even if we're very different people, we can compare effort of output. So I thought it might be interesting to overlay some of that data. So when you see me climbing this crazy hill, the little whoop thing had come up in the corner and I'm at 14 out of 21 or whatever. Or if I'm snowshoeing down a river bottom, I'm only at a 12 out of 21. Or if I'm packing out the goat and my full backpack, maybe I'll be like at a 20 out of 21. Uh, and, and, and I was thought I could do like end of day energy expenditure. So you could see exactly how many calories I burnt every day and compare that to how much food I'm putting in every day and see what the actual discrepancy is. Anyway, going to play with it more, super excited about it. It should be fun. Um, and I'll keep you guys in the loop. And once I've worn it for like a good six, seven months and really have a, a, a better understanding for how it works and how I feel about it, I'll do a more thorough review process. We can also set up groups uh, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. So if there's anybody else who's into hunting and has one of these things, shoot me a DM and we can start like a whoop group and keep track of each other's performance and see how each other are doing on hikes and stuff like that. Once I get things ramped up for the goat hunt, I'll start one and then maybe post like an invite code at the end of the podcast. But for now, if you have a whoop and you're interested in linking up, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, and we'll link up that way. Okay. Not much going on in current events, but what I did want to do was spend a little bit of time uh, just noting that the early sheep draw is now open. I think it for this for BC residents, I think it's open until either February 5th or 15th. But there's essentially, I don't know, 10 or 12 units that you can put in for, for early sheep. There's a couple of doll units and then the rest are stone units. And there's, you can also put in for black bear on Haida Gwaii. Um, 
So just in case you guys didn't know that, I've gone in for doll this year. My plan right now for sheep, I'm going to be doing a two-week hunt, probably mid-August. If I pull the doll tags, I'll head up to the tat. And if I don't, I will probably do stone in the northeastern Rockies, just because I've kind of been to that area a couple times before, and I feel like I have a better lay of the land. The only other current events that's not hunting related, but it's bodybuilding related is that the Olympia was two weeks ago and it was probably the most exciting Olympia in the last five years. I was shocked. It was just, it was full of kind of suspense and drama and it was just, it was a really exciting sporting event to watch. There was a lot of overturned titles. So Sean Clarita took the 212 Uh, He was never expected to do that. He's a very short guy. He had a very uphill battle and he just looked crazy. Big Rami took the open men's people have been waiting for that guy to come in in serious condition for years and to see him come in shredded the way he was is just the dude's behemoth, man. He's just a sight to behold. And then Chris Bumstead took the classic physique for the second year in a row, dominated the entire division. And he's a Canadian and uh, he's one of my favorite guys out there right now. Just a really good guy. Um, and then on a more personal note, my favorite bodybuilder is probably Ian Valier. He's another Canadian. Awesome guy. Crazy rugged physique. Super shredded. Like just looks like fucking granite. Paper thin skin. Like he's ridiculous. And he took seventh and he beat Hunter Labrada, who beat him earlier this year. And... I didn't even really care who won the Olympia this year. I just wanted Ian to beat Hunter and he did. So I was super excited for that, but I don't know how many of you guys follow that sport. Probably not many, but it it was a really good year. Despite everything that went on, they were able to finish very strongly and they had a really good event. So I just wanted to take a minute to note that. All right, let's dig into the main topic this week for rain gear. I'm going to take a moment and establish my credibility to even talk about this subject. As I mentioned before, I was a forestry engineer in British Columbia, coastal British Columbia for the most part, for 15 years. So I spent the vast majority of my career, five days a week, 10 hours a day in the fucking mountains. We literally get out of the truck, start walking up a hill, and you'd be outside every day until you got back of the truck pretty close to dark every night. So I've spent far more days out in the rain, in the mountains than the average human being. You also really find out what works when you're forced to use it for work. Like any piece of rain gear will last a couple hours in ideal situations, but like, what can you wear day in, day out, beat it up in the brush and, and still have it function over a long period of time. That's the kind of data that I'm interested in. Now, what works for work isn't necessarily what works for hunting. I can tell you that for forestry engineering, in my opinion, after going through several systems, hands down, the best system is the Heli Hansen Armor Series. So this is a dual layer series. It's basically two jackets and two pants that are sewn together. So the the inner layer is like their Impertech material. 
which is essentially this stretchy, stretchy fabric that's been dipped, like rubberized. And that's the first jacket. And then they have this hardcore 420D nylon exterior shell. And it's kind of sewn together at the cuffs and the, and the collars. Um, and it's bomb proof that I, there's nothing else on the market that's even remotely as close to as durable as that. There's some pure rubberized stuff that is close to as good, but nothing can really compare to that dual layer system. Like a true, like it's not two laminated layers. It's like two completely independent garments that are just held together at the cuffs and the collars and the waistband for the, for the pants. And it's basically like bib pants and then a big jacket with a hood, um, if somebody was telling me that they were going to be out in the rain working for 10 hours a day, that's the shit I would tell them to go buy. That is definitely not the shit I would tell you to go buy for hunting. So in order to talk about what we would buy for hunting, I think it's important to take a minute and discuss construction of rain gear. And I want to make a couple notes here because there's a lot of marketing hype in this industry and I want to do my best to cut through it. So I'm going to tell you right now, it is physically impossible in real world conditions for a garment to be perfectly waterproof and perfectly breathable at the same time. It's impossible. So any of the marketing hype that leads you to believe this, just discard it. Now, I'm not saying a garment can't contain elements of waterproof and breathability but it will not be purely waterproof and purely breathable. That's going to be the kind of crux of this entire conversation is like the compromise of rain gear. I think people think in their heads, there's actually some magic jacket they can wear that will let them hike up a mountain with a pack on in the rain and stay dry. Never going to happen you would be creating far too much moisture inside the jacket. Wouldn't even matter what was going on outside of the jacket. You just sweat it out. So there's a bunch of variables we're going to be kind of looking at at the same time. Like how much energy are we going to expend? What are the circumstances as far as terrain? How hard is the rain? Are we actually going to be hunting in the rain or are we going to shut it down in the rain? Because different hunts call for different things. And with all of these variables mixing together, it's going to call for different pieces of, of gear. Here's the other myth that I wanted to spell right out of the gate. There is no one perfect piece of rain gear. There's also no one perfect tent. There's no one perfect pair of pants. There's a good, better, and best option for every set of circumstances. So if you tell me I'm going on an elk hunt, we're going to be bivy hunting three to four days at a time. We're going to be in Montana for the second and third week of September there's three of us, then I can say, okay, here's your good, better, best. Here's your three options that you can take with you. If you tell me I'm going to Alaska on a doll sheep hunt, planes dropping us off. We're going to be in for 12 straight days. This is the weather report. Okay. Here's your good, better, best. Here's your three options that you can take for those circumstances. There is not any single piece of gear that is going to be the best option for a doll sheep hunt in Alaska and the best option for an elk hunt in Montana. So one other note that I will make is that I'm not saying you can't have waterproof rain gear and you can't have breathable rain gear. However, if something is purely waterproof, 
then it won't be breathable. And if something is purely breathable, it won't be very waterproof. So rubberized rain gear, for example, is 100% waterproof, but it's 0% breathable. So as we kind of continue this conversation, that's another element of compromise that we're going to be continually referencing. How do we manage the differential between how waterproof our gear is and how breathable our gear is? Now, I think that's a nice segue to get into how breathable rain gear actually works. Because I think if you understand this at a technical level, you'll be in a better place to make educated decisions about what type of rain gear you want to buy. So I'm going to use Gore-Tex as the example about how this stuff is built. Most other stuff is built fairly similarly. There's a couple exceptions, but the underlying principles are the same across all manufacturers. We are essentially looking at a pressure differential between two areas, and we can utilize that pressure differential in order to evacuate moisture from one area to another area and to stop moisture from getting from one area to another area. So if we actually look at the way Gore-Tex is is constructed, a single layer of Gore-Tex is a composite, like a sandwich of three layers. So there's two nylon outer layers, and then there is this expanded Teflon layer in the inside. So it's basically Teflon that has gone through a manufacturing process that's kind of like puffed it up and created these micro porous holes. And essentially, the holes are so small that they will let water vapor through in one direction, but they won't let water droplets through in another direction. So let me back up and and say that again. Your breathable rain gear isn't actually evacuating water per se from your body. Like sweat is not moving from one side of your rain gear to the other side of the rain gear. Water vapor is. So basically you sweat, you get wet, and then the heat on your body causes that moisture to evaporate and vaporize. And then the vapor, the vapor particles are smaller than water droplets. And the vapor particles can be pushed through that microporous Teflon layer, whereas the water droplets of the liquid water are far too large to get back through. Now, to put some numbers to this, so uh, the holes in that Teflon layer are less than one micrometer or one millionth of a meter. You could also say that one fiftieth the diameter of an average human hair. So we're talking small. Now, as I mentioned, water vapor can go through that layer. A water droplet on average is 20,000 times larger than the pores in the Teflon layer. The other thing to keep in mind here, this is why people have always said it's really important how you clean your Gore-Tex because you're dealing with a highly delicate material with all these micropores. So like dust and dirt and debris. This is why for work situations, Gore-Tex is shit. I never wore any Gore-Tex at work. I would never recommend any Gore-Tex for work because by the end of your second or third week, you've beat it all up so much and filled it all so full of mud and crap 
none of it is going to work the way that it's supposed to anyways. But for hunting, where we can protect our gear a little bit more, take care of it a little bit more, and we're not out in the field quite as much, I do think there is a place for Gore-Tex-like, you know, breathable, waterproof fabrics. Now, that's just the base construction. An average Gore-Tex garment is going to be created using three of these composite layers. So you're going to have an outer nylon shell, and then you're going to have an inner hydrophilic layer and an outer hydrophobic layer. So let me back up in a sec. So if we start at the skin, you are going to have a hydrophilic layer. Hydrophilic means water loving. So you will have one of those composite Gore-Tex layers with the porous Teflon that is designed to attract water. So that's what's going to pull the water vapor out of your body. And then the next layer is going to be hydrophobic. That's going to be the water hating layer. That's not going to let in liquid water from the outside. And then using that pressure differential between the high pressure system inside the jacket and the low pressure system outside of the jacket, you're going to evacuate that vapor through both those layers and then out through the nylon shell. The second function of that outer hydrophobic layer is to provide thermal insulation. One of the points that I try to make all the time, if you think about rain gear as a garment that is meant to keep you warm instead of a garment that is meant to keep you dry, you're going to be much more successful in your kind of rain gear utilization strategy. Because here's the deal. I've worn everything under the sun. And much like I noted at the beginning of the podcast, when you're hiking up a mountain with a full pack on your back, nothing will keep you dry. I mean, I can't do that on a nice, you know, dry, sunny day. I'm still soaking wet when I get to the top. So how would it be even remotely possible for me to accomplish that while I stuff myself inside of like a an airtight, you know, jacket and pair of pants? Like it's not going to happen. I think most people have very unrealistic expectations of their rain gear. Now, what's important is that I stay warm because I can continue to function and execute if I'm warm, I don't really care about getting wet. Now, there are some exceptions. I don't like wet feet for extended periods of time. You're just going to do damage and you're going to shut your hunt down early because your can't, feet can't be wet for multiple days in a row until the skin will just start to break down. As long as I can keep my feet dry, I don't really give a shit about the rest. I can dry out most things fairly decently at night, either by a fire or in my sleeping bag. Um, and really, once you get used to the sensation of being wet, there's nothing physically damaging about it other than the exception of the feet that I mentioned. So, however, getting extremely cold will shut down a hunt. You can go hypothermic. Um, there's a lot of things that could occur that would shut your hunt down. Getting wet doesn't send you home. Getting cold to the point where you can't get warm again does send you home. So one, one exception to this uh, microporous Teflon layer, there's a company, Sympatex, that uses a copolymer that's actually combined of a hydrophobic polyester and a hydrophilic polyether. So these are actually polymerized materials, and it, the science gets a little bit wonky even for me. But again, even with how different that construction technology is, it's still the same principle. We're going to combine multiple layers that 
will allow vapor out in one direction and keep water out, liquid water out in the other direction. And we're going to utilize pressure differential in order to facilitate that purpose. Now, the reason I wanted to go through all this, because maybe you don't even give a shit about that. I'm trying to help you understand how your weighing gear works so that you can have more realistic expectations of it and so that you can understand why it fails in certain circumstances, like why backpack straps physically compressing your rain gear would force water through the hydrophobic layer uh, because it's compressing the water and physically forcing it through the garment or about how when you're busting through brush and you have leaves and branch branches pushing against your garment, how that, because remember I said it was a pressure differential. Well, there's different ways to create pressure. One would be like atmospheric or like a volume gaseous pressure, which is what's happening inside your, your jacket when the temperature of your body creates a high pressure system inside of the jacket. The other way to do that is just physical pressure. Like just put your hand on the jacket and physically force the water through the holes. It will go through because the holes are there unless it's a rubberized jacket. So these are the type of circumstances that like breathable rain gear is just not built for. So like we're on the coast in like really thick um, salal or like really thick veg. I know there's a lot of areas like that in Alaska. If you're beating through the aspens or the willows in these like hellhole choked river bottoms, like your rain gear is just not going to work. It's just, you the water's just going to get pushed through it. Um, but again, if we have good quality rain gear, it'll, it will still act in it. It will still maintain its insulative properties, even though it's waterproof capabilities have been compromised. So at the end of the day, we're still functioning and we're still hunting. So now that we know the essential construction techniques utilized in rain gear, let's talk about how that actually manifests itself in the garments that are on the market that we have the option to purchase. For the most part, you have single, double, and triple layer jackets. A single layer is still going to be a triple composite layer, but it's only going to have one of those layers. Sometimes it would be rubberized. Sometimes it'll have some type of uh, proprietary uh, composite or, or or material adhered to it. Like it'll be a laminate-like material. Uh, two really good examples of a single-ply rain jacket would be the Sitka Vapor SD jacket and the Frog Togs Ultralight 2. And I'm going to come back to that because I think the Frog Tog system as a whole is like a really underutilized gem in the market. And I'm going to get into why I think that once we get into dual layer construction, um, I'm pretty sure the cloud burst from Sitka is a dual layer system. And the Northridge from Kuyu is a dual layer system. I also know the vapor from first light is a two layer system. So you're going to be able to tell two layer systems because they're cheaper and they're lighter. They will not be as durable. And I would say on the whole, they would possess a higher degree of breathability, but a slightly lower degree of waterproofness. So they're going to be your more active hunting pieces. I wouldn't want to be like waiting out a like torrential downpour in one of those lighter pieces of gear. However, if you were going to be hiking while it was raining, I would much prefer 
these lighter pieces of gear. And I'm going to get into specific recommendations in a moment. Finally, we have a triple layer. Now, I do want to make a note. All manufacturers are going to apply some type of marketing hype. So they might call it 3.5 layer, 4.2 layer, or like fucking whatever, because they are all counting their layers differently. And are they including all the different composites and all this kind of stuff? And every time they spray some more rubber on it, well, that's a new layer. And like, it kind of doesn't matter. These are your higher end, more expensive, more durable pieces. This is the Stormfront from Sitka, the Yukon from Kuyu, Seek from First Light. They're going to weigh in at anywhere from like 22 to 25 ounces for a large jacket. They're going to be highly waterproof. Breathability is going to take a little bit of a hit simply because it's a heavier piece of gear. However, these would be the pieces of gear that you would want if you were stuck in a torrential downpour. Um, so we basically have three areas within the market. We have ultralight, low dur- durability, mid-weight, mid-durability, and high-weight, high durability. And I would argue that waterproofness would progress upon the same linear scale. Like you are going to go up in waterproofness and down in breathability to a certain extent, the higher up the food chain you go on these pieces. One quick note I want to make, because there's a lot of non-hunting companies that have a lot of really good pieces of gear, but a lot of these pieces are not utilized for what we utilize them for when we hunt with them. They're not getting put through the same paces. So say like the Sitka Vapor SD is actually a trail running jacket. Arcteryx and Outdoor Research have very similar pieces of gear. Now, if I take this gear hunt, this piece of gear hunting, I know what's going to happen. Like it's going to do okay, but there's going to be shortcomings because it just, it's impossible for one piece of gear to be magically perfect and be highly durable and highly waterproof and ultralight all at the same time. But you'll go on some websites and you'll see people like raving about how amazing these pieces of gear are. Keep in mind, these are probably trail runners. They're not wearing a pack. They're probably not running in heavy, heavy rain. They're running on cleared trails or they're walking their dogs, or they're like, just take all the reviews with a grain of salt and don't have unrealistic expectations because there is a limit to what these pieces of gear are designed for. Now, with that being said, companies specifically like Outdoor Research and Arcteric have phenomenal rain gear um, and and different weights and and durabilities across the board. It was a bit too exp- extensive for the nature of this podcast for me to do like a complete lineup from every single company that makes rain gear. So I really just wanted to focus on hunting companies. But if you're on a budget and you can find like clearance sales um, and they're selling like OR and Arcteryx rain jackets, like I highly, highly recommend those as a very viable option. I would just make sure you're going like a step or two up as far as like durability and waterproofness goes, because their ultra light options are going to be more suited towards like trail running and less aggressive kind of endeavors than hunting is. Okay. So now let's have a practical conversation about what to use when. So I'm going to define three different situations. Situation one, little to no chance of rain. Situation two is going to be a high chance of rain, but a low chance of actually hunting in the rain. Think like a 
potentially a sheep hunt in Alaska where if it rains, it could be highly foggy. So um, you're likely not going to be hunting anyways. Or, and this could also apply to rifle hunts because I'm primarily an archer. If you're going to be so far away from an animal that noise isn't really an issue, this also comes into play in this second situation. And then situation three is going to be a high chance of rain with a high chance of hunting. The perfect example of this is coastal blacktail. It would be very common for me in the fall to leave the house at 6 a.m., get out of the truck at 6.30 or 7, have it be drizzling, and then have it rain either mildly or aggressively all day. And you're just in that rain all day. So three situations, light rain, heavy rain, no hunting, heavy rain, heavy hunting. Now, before I get into the specific recommendations, I will say that I will bring, rain gear is one of those things where I always bring it all. So if I'm leaving to go on a backpack hunt somewhere, I bring all my rain stuff in a tote in the truck. And then based on the weather report that I'll, that I'll download right before I leave, I'll make a last minute decision about which setup is right for those particular circumstances. The exception to that is day hunting. Um, if I'm day hunting, I don't care what I bring because weight is not nearly as much of an issue. So I'll play it better safe than sorry in that particular circumstance. Take out of all of the following recommendations with a grain of salt. There are no perfect answers. You are always going to be blending performance with weight. In an ideal world, I think you should have an ultralight setup and a hardcore setup. Not all budgets are going to allow for that. So I'm going to give you some create some creative options in order to solve that without breaking the bank. Okay. So given our three sets of circumstances, here's the actual recommendations I would make. So for the little to no chance of rain, I'm still always going to take something right now. It's the frog togs ultralight two. I think this is a vastly overlooked piece of gear. It's only 30 bucks. It weighs under 20 ounces for the pants and the jacket. It's more durable than you think it would be. It's super packable. I can't recommend this enough. And at 30 bucks, you could buy 10 of those for what it costs you to buy a single cloudburst jacket. I've had mine for two and a half years. And although there's a couple pinholes in it from brush and other things, the jacket still works perfectly fine. I've taken it on half a dozen hunts. So for the ultralight setup, Frog Togs Ultralight 2 or the Sitka Vapor SD jacket. I've never worn that particular jacket, but a lot of people I trust have worn that jacket and highly recommend it. So I would like to put that into my kit for this year. Just waiting until the budget allows for it. Okay, next, we're going to have a high chance of rain, but a low chance of hunting in it. Now, the reason I want it make a discrepancy between this and hunting is that I don't think you need pants, rain pants, if you're not going to be hunting in the rain. So if rain is most likely going to shut down your hunt, I would just get the jacket to save money and save space. You can always hole up and hunker down under a tree or throw up a quick tarp like and, and, and your upper body blocks most of your lower body anyways. And I know it might sound weird, but like, I don't really care about having wet legs as much as I do about a wet core. So if I'm looking to save space and I'm looking to shave dollars, I would go with a high-end jacket only. So that would be either the Stormfront from Sitka or the Yukon from Kuyu. 
I have the seek from First Light. I'm going to come right out and say it. I cannot personally recommend First Light rain gear. I'm not overly impressed with it. I've had the seek for many years and I've put it through its paces. I would not buy it again. I don't recommend anybody else buy it. I haven't tried their vapor line, so I'm going to refrain from making a comment. But when one piece is crap, it kind of leads me to believe that the other piece is likely crap too. So I will be most likely moving into Sitka rain gear once I need new stuff. Now, listen, it works good enough. It's expensive gear. So until it like rips, falls apart, or I outgrow it, or my daughter, well, she'll never fit my stuff. So rain gear is a bad example. But I was going to say, if my daughter gets old enough that I can give her my old stuff and buy new stuff, I won't be buying rain new rain gear anytime soon. Because again, it works good enough. It keeps me warm. It might not keep me the driest. Anyways, I'm going on a bit of a rant. I can't recommend personally First Light rain gear. My experience has been it's not very good. Um, the Sitka Stormfront or Kuyu Yukon would be a great choice, though. It's pretty highly regarded across the industry that Sitka and Kuyu, as far as hunting brands, make the best rain gear. I think OR and Arcteryx would give them a run for their money for sure. I've heard good things about Cryptech, but to be honest, I only know one or two people that have actually run it. And that's too small of a sample size for me to make uh, or to draw conclusions about its performance. So I don't feel comfortable making recommendations. I know a lot of people who run Kuyu and love it, rain gear. And I know a lot of people who run Sitka rain gear and love it. So I feel comfortable, even though I've never worn it, giving you my recommendations on those pieces. Okay, so finally we have the high chance of rain and the high chance of hunting in it. This is where I would go with high quality jacket and pants. And I would look at potentially just wearing the pants all day. If I'm going to be hunting in the rain all day, I tend to wear either just boxers or long johns and my rain pants. You can open them up with the side zips. I hate trying to keep changing in and out of rain gear. So sometimes I won't even bring regular pants. Like if I'm hunting blacktail for the day, I just take my rain pants and I wear long johns if it's going to be cold. And if it's not going to be cold, I don't. But this is the situation where you're going to need the most out of your rain gear. And that's why it's going to be the most expensive problem to solve. Now, depending upon the level of physical exertion and how dense the brush is, that's going to dictate which system you actually go with for this particular scenario. Essentially, in Sitka, we have the Cloudburst, Thunderhead, and Stormfront. Cloudburst is their lightweight dual-layer system. Stormfront is their heavyweight triple-layer system. The Thunderhead is an interesting piece in the middle that's essentially a dual-layer system that actually has like a a roughed polyester DWR coating that makes it extremely quiet. So if you were archery hunting in the rain, I think the, the Thunderhead would be the ideal example. But if you're budget conscious, the brush isn't too thick and you're going to be highly active, I'd go with the Cloudburst. If the brush is very thick and you're going to be moving a little bit less, I would go with the Stormfront system. The same can be said for Kuyu. They have four different options going from the Northridge to the Chugosh to the Katana to the Yukon. And again, they move up in durability and up in layers. So you're pretty much asking yourself the same question 
there. Now, if I was on a budget and I'd kind of disregard everything that I just said, I would save up for a really good jacket and get the Frog Togs system. So if you had enough money, I'd get the Stormfront jacket from Sitka. Now it's 600 USD. If you don't have that much money, get the Cloudburst, it's 300. But ideally, save up for the Stormfront and then get the Frog Togs. This way you're covered because you could always use the Frog Tog pants. And remember that pant, that thing comes as a system. So when you spend that 30 bucks, you're getting the pants and the jacket for the 30 bucks. So you could always use the Frog Tog pants with the Stormfront jacket. So that would be my recommendation for people who are just starting out and on a budget, save up for a really nice jacket, ideally the Stormfront from Sitka or the Yukon from Kuyu, and then buy the Frog Togs Ultralight 2s and then save up for a really good pair of pants. You're ultimately going to want to get to a place where you have a lightweight system like the Cloudburst and a heavyweight system like the Stormfront, but not everybody has a ton of money out of the gate. So I think that's an excellent compromise. So I just want to note, take all of the recommendations I just made with a grain of salt, especially with rain gear, you are always going to be walking a fine line of compromise between performance and durability and weight. And there is no perfect answer. And the more I listen to John Barklow, the more I tend to hedge my bets towards safety which is why you heard me recommend the Stormfront and the Yukon a lot. A lot of people would feel that would be overkill and it's a couple more ounces than you need to carry. Um, but I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to think worst case scenarios now. Like what would I need to actually help me survive? If it's going to take three or four more ounces, it's going to take three, four more ounces. I'm going to go with that survivability factor. All right. Pretty technical podcast, a lot of information. I hope it it made sense. If anybody has any more questions or feedback, you guys know how to reach me. Email j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, and YouTube, mindful underscore hunter. You can watch and listen to this podcast on any of the popular platforms. And as always, I appreciate a like, comment, share, and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.